I would share as a message to, um, you know, our audience being mostly engineers as well, that, you know, learning how to communicate and tell a story is going to get you really far in terms of getting other people to buy into your ideas or, you know, work better with people who don't come from the same background as you. Listening to the OMSCS Buzz, the official podcast for Georgia Tech's online master's in computer science program. I'm your host, Tan Shah, and on this show, I have long-form conversations with OMSCS students, alumni, and faculty. Together, we'll learn about cutting-edge work in computing and get inspired from our fellow Yellow Jackets. So sit back, grab a beverage, and enjoy. On this episode of OMSES Buzz, I'm joined by Brittany Xline. Brittany is a software engineer and technology leader who has worked for years in advertising technology and educational tech. She attended the University of Pennsylvania at 15, where she was the youngest African-American to be accepted into an Ivy League school. She's also a very passionate public speaker and writer and is currently a TA for OMSES's CS7637 knowledge-based AI course. And so I'm very excited to talk to Brittany about her background and her journey throughout OMSES. Thanks so much for joining me. How are you? Thanks for that lovely intro. I'm doing well. Excited to be here. Excellent. So I want to start first by talking about your career in software engineering. And as I mentioned, you started off right after graduating from college in the ad tech space. And I think you spent about five to six years there. So my first question to kick things off is, what got you interested in working in ad tech? And what are some of the kinds of projects that you were working on uh, in that industry? I mean, honestly, I kind of stumbled into ad tech. I was just looking for a job after graduation, and that's kind of where I landed. I didn't really know much about the industry or what kind of software I wanted to work on, and um, I just took the job and kind of started and just went with (laughs) what was in front of me. Um, But I think... While I was there, I mean, I definitely learned a lot about the industry. My first job was at a place called Chittica that did mostly search advertisements, so um, and mostly partnered with Yahoo. So I worked on kind of the backend ad server, which would you know take the query that someone typed in or whatever text from you know the page that the user visited was passed into us and send that to Yahoo's APIs um, and maybe some other APIs and then serve back an ad with, uh, you know, all the HTML and CSS stylings that were configured. And that was, that was what I worked on for the majority of my time there. Um, And yeah, I mean, I think I learned a lot about like the fundamentals of software engineering. I had a great mentor who was very passionate about writing clean code Um, making sure that we had a lot of monitoring on the ad server and knew when things were wrong and were able to act quickly. Um, You know, also passionate about like testing. And so I learned a lot from him um, there working on that technology. 
And then I went to another company called Nanigans, and they also worked in ads, uh, but they worked mostly with Facebook and then later Twitter. I, again, worked on the back end. Um, I worked on kind of the way Nanigans, their software was for advertisers who were trying to manage their ads on Facebook. And, you know, the value add was that Nanigans could like give all these analytics and insights about how to tweak the audience. And I guess this was early enough when Facebook hadn't like just automatically done that for you, (laughs) especially if you were a big advertiser with a lot of spend available. So users would configure their ads in in the interface. The part of the software I worked on, you know, was really to create the ads through the Facebook API and manage any changes that users made to their ads, again, through the API. Later, I kind of helped redesign that infrastructure um, and incorporate Twitter ads into that. Um, And again, you know, a lot of, I had a great mentor there too, who was very passionate about architecture. Um, It was like a relatively young startup. So the code I was working with was kind of a mess. And we, (laughs) we did a lot of work to try and like clean it up and make it more stable, um, add a lot of unit testing. Um, And, you know, I think from those first two jobs, like, besides just the technical education of how to be a software engineer, which is not something I really learned in my CS education as an undergrad, um, I kind of learned, like, just how important it is to be able to communicate with stakeholders who aren't engineers, who aren't technical, um, and also to be able to like just work well with other people like you know mediate conflicts um understand the business context um and you know really understand what resources are available and try to make the best decisions you can with those constraints and you know with the knowledge of like what the actual goal is beyond the technology yeah and in the six years that you spent in the industry, I know the ad space moves very quickly. So yeah, what observations did you make about how ad tech was changing? Or for instance, you mentioned about new integrations that Facebook started to offer, you know, what, how did the landscape um, evolve? Uh, and, and, and from your perspective in your, in your time uh, at these various companies? Yeah. I mean, I think it was like a time of consolidation, honestly. I mean, I think part of why the second company I worked at ended up, you know, shutting down was because Facebook was able to just like take the things that this company was doing and just put it in their own platform. So there wasn't a second place that the customer had to go to, to put their ads up, you know, and same with Google. And I don't know as much about Yahoo. I mean, Yahoo's less relevant than it was then, but you know, we definitely see Google has invested a lot in their ads capability within their search engine. Like those results are at the top, like we're all used to it. And, you know, there's not really much room for competitors to come in and like, you know, because in the first place they de- they depended on these large platforms. So, you know, they kind of just monopolized and cemented their place as like, ad juggernaut. So when I was working in that industry, that was kind of the start of that trend, um, which I think is now fully realized. I see. So looking back, would you 
for the new graduates of today's in, of today's age, right? Would you recommend them to start their careers in this industry? Uh, I mean, mm-hmm. I, I'm sure things have changed uh, between when you were there and and how it is now. But um, you know, what right. what are your thoughts on the kind of work culture or the uh, types of work that you're doing, and, and and is it something that new grads would find valuable? You know, I think like if I were giving myself advice um, going back, I'm not sure if I would have necessarily chosen ad tech. Um, but I think that fundamentally, I think working especially in web development and, you know, these internet companies of that time, I think the culture probably wasn't so different than where I was. I think that as a as a new graduate, I think you kind of have to first approach the decision is like, where am I going to learn a lot? Um, and, and also just be conscious of when you, you need to move to continue to learn and grow. So from that perspective, maybe it doesn't really matter where you start. Um, but I think like, as I went further along my career, I kind of realized that just fundamentally the ads industry wasn't really aligned with my values. So I think like understanding your values, um, and what, you want, you know, what you're willing to work with an employer um, and what they're working on and, you know, what the implications of that might be. I think you have to, it's good to try and develop that understanding of what, what is meaningful and ethical to you. Um, And I think when I started, I didn't really have an idea of that. (laughs) And I think as I went on and um, you know, worked at those two companies, I kind of realized that it wasn't really the best fit for me and where I wanted to go in the future. Yeah. And I think that takes us to your transition into working in educational tech. And you talked about values. So, you know, was that the impetus for moving into edutech? Or I guess what what was the motivation for wanting to switch industries? Yeah, I think that was definitely the the fundamental motivation was just that I wanted to work on something that I thought I could feel good about that sort of supported progress in something that I thought was important and worthy of that, which is education. Um, So that's how I ended up at edX. Interesting. And what kind of projects did you work on when you were at edX? Uh, So I worked on the edX for business platform, which was just kind of starting when I started. So that was a really exciting opportunity because I kind of got to help um, build a lot of that technology from the ground up that was sort of auxiliary to the main edX platform um, and specialized for, you know, this this sector. And basically the, the goal of this, you know, whole initiative was to make, you know, make the edX platform accessible to companies that wanted to use it for training and development. So if you're not familiar with edX, it's longtime competitor with Coursera, where they have online courses from, you know, prestigious colleges and universities around the world um, that they offer for free or low cost. Um, and so companies are investing in training and development. It makes sense for them to have access to the edX platform you know, have more specialized pathways or interfaces for their learners to come and, you know, for talent and learning managers to be able to monitor progress, assign courses, you know, get get information about the efficacy or what these learners are learning to kind of justify that 
this this training is working. So a lot of what I built over my time at edX was sort of, uh, you know, towards those ends. Where do you see opportunities for educational tech to evolve, specifically from a technological perspective? Yeah, that's also kind of a tough question for me, just because I think I, I haven't... Um, it's been about three years since I've really been at edX and then even longer from the technology because I became a manager the last two years I was there and I wasn't as involved in the coding. You know, I think that clearly there's opportunities for, I think, personalized learning or, you know, kind of AI tutors or kind of this this idea of, you know, not just having like the same course structure for everyone, but being able to dynamically adjust when a learner is struggling with content or when a learner is doing really well and, you know, maybe needs more challenge. You know, I think that's probably the biggest technological opportunity. I think it's kind of a difficult one just because it depends so much on what the, what the content is like maybe for a technical course that could be easier, but I think if it's more of a humanities or, um, you know, kind of, a critical thinking course, I think it might be a little more difficult to achieve that just because um, of the nature of the content. I think I'm going to note on from a business perspective, just because I think, again, that's really important to understand as an engineer. Um, you know, 2U actually bought edX after I left and edX was a nonprofit that was very much dedicated towards like this kind of low cost education um, you know, I think they partnered with Georgia Tech to actually launch, launch the analytics program, um, at least initially. And so, you know, one thing I think is concerning to me about this is just that the, you know, the idea of online education was to make things more accessible to learners. You know, there's definitely an issue when it comes to learners who might not have as strong of a background to be able to learn independently. You know, again, that's there's technological opportunities for that, as I just discussed. But, you know, I think with companies like 2U, they tend to um, put out online programs that are like the same cost as master's programs that are in person. And I think that, you know, I've heard the quality isn't always as good as like if it were an in-person program. And I think that's that's like a business problem that I think, you know, is kind of a threat to the industry and its legitimacy because it was kind of promising a lot about accessibility when it comes to education. So I'm curious to see how that goes, but um, yeah, I hope I hope it improves. I hope there's more programs like OMSCS in the future. Gotcha. Yeah, one thing that I would like to see personally is more initiatives around this concept of like massive online learning applied to um, countries where there is a lack of solid K through 12 infrastructure. And I think there's really an opportunity to not just for master's programs or higher education, but for these, you know, fundamental skills that we need to learn as, as young people, as kids. I think there's a real opportunity to expand um, these companies' presence or, or you know, new companies, right? And and uh, see how we can increase the literacy rate for as many people as possible in developing nations. So that's that's just kind of my two cents on on that whole industry. I think there is a place for that, but I do think that it is harder when it comes to earlier education just because, you know, there really is an important role of having 
a personal interaction. And I think there is a level of abstraction with like online education that I think might not suit younger people in their learning, especially, you know, the younger you go, like maybe high school, I think it's more likely to be okay than kindergarten. Um, but that's just based on like kind of the little I know about, you know, how, how people learn, um, and you know, how children in particular learn, um, from, you know, just things I've read casually. So I think that there definitely is opportunity, as you said, but it can never replace in-person contact and education and learning to be effective. Fair, fair. Yeah. So let's talk about public speaking. I understand you're very passionate about this and you've been a featured speaker at a number of national conferences as well as being president of uh, one of the largest Toastmasters groups, which for folks listening who don't know, Toastmasters is a uh, professional public speaking development uh, organization. So Brittany, what what kinds of messages do you like to share via public speaking and, and why do you find that platform so meaningful to you? I was in Toastmasters for six years while I lived in Boston. Um, I actually didn't continue my membership in Toastmasters when I moved to Colorado like five years ago. So I haven't been as active, but you know, I think the thing that I loved most about Toastmasters was just learning the importance of storytelling. Um, this is, I think, very important as uh, someone who, who works in a technical field or worked in a technical field for a really long time because, again, communication with people who aren't, you know, super technical, who don't know all the details of how the system works, you really have to understand what's going to get through to other people and I think humans are really attuned to a story so if so that's that's where I think I learned a lot that came to my career um and that I think I would share as a message to um you know our audience being mostly engineers as well that you know learning how to communicate and tell a story is going to get you really far in terms of getting other people to buy into your ideas or, you know, work better with people who don't come from a, the same background as you. Um, you know, I think another thing that's great about Toastmasters um, that's sort of undersold is the community aspect. Um, the club that I was a president of, or one of the clubs was Boston Toastmasters, and we had an average of 80 members during the time that I was there, which most Toastmasters clubs are around 20 to 25 members. And I think it was just so nice to interact with people from all kinds of different walks of life. And, you know, again, just very inspiring to hear different stories about just the most random things that I wouldn't expect to learn. And I got to kind of see that every week when I was a member. And I, I think that was also a great message of Toastmasters of there's something you can learn from anyone no matter how different from you they are yeah so f as you said a lot of the audience listening to this show are engineers so yes. maybe what are some some tactical tips that you could give that one can implement right away in their work life or their their master's courses about being a more effective speaker and collaborator sure i think you know first thing is just avoiding jargon or if, if that jargon is important, just breaking it down in simple language, avoiding 
avoiding terms that might be confusing or technical, I think that's that's a good place to start is <laughs> just to be conscious of the words that you're using and making sure that they're not getting in the way of someone's understanding. You know, I think another important thing with communication, and I know this is going to sound cliche, but just to listen, really understand what someone's concerns are or how they might be reacting and consider like, what, how does that play into, you know, what I can do as an engineer? Like, is there, is it a matter of they just feel out of the loop and they want to (laughs) have more information when things are happening, you know, then offering like, oh, I can tell you when this release goes out. Um, I'll just come over or I'll, I'll ping you. Um, Is it a matter of worrying about how this will actually work? You can offer to sit down and, you know, give them a demo. Um, So I think just kind of understanding the needs of the other people around you and listening carefully. And then, you know, usually you don't need anything super complicated to accommodate people. You just need to kind of take the time to listen and be able to follow up on what you, what they might need help with later. Um, Just follow through. Yeah, I definitely agree with those. And one thing that I'll throw in as well is the art of conciseness. And this applies to both written and verbal communication. I think you know, th- think back to when you're writing college essays, for example, and you're given 200 words or 300 words to basically write your life story. And uh, this this was a process that all of us went through when applying to undergraduate schools, at least those in the U.S. And it's it's really the same when you look at it in your professional setting, right? And and knowing how you can share more in in less words or. or um, in, in less verbiage. And I think that's a skill that is, is quite hard to master. I, it's one that I pay a lot of attention to, uh, in my work. And I'm, I would encourage those who are listening to also see how they can be more concise with their emails or with their writing. Um, and also be more of a, uh, storyteller as Brittany mentioned, or, or be kind of writing in more of a narrative format. Um, I think a lot of times in the corporate world, we get sucked into slide decks and PowerPoints and, you know, as great as they are for uh, KPIs and, and, and success metrics, at the same time, they often um, do a poor job of, of telling the underlying story. And I think writing your thoughts in a narrative format um, is a great way to make sure that you're getting the point across that you would like to so that you can be a more effective uh, contributor to your project and 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 be more um, visible to your leadership. So that's just a tip that that I would uh, also add on there. Um, something that I'm working towards as well. Yeah, definitely. But speaking of writing, Brittany, I I, I do want to talk about uh, this interesting project that you're part of right now, which is the Lighthouse Writers Book Project. And I understand that you're in a cohort uh, in this in this group right now. So, can you share a bit more about what exactly that entails, and you know what's uh, what's on the roadmap for you? Are you like writing a book pretty soon, or what's happening? I am writing a book, actually. I guess to maybe start from the beginning, I I started writing shortly after I moved back to Colorado, and I was really just writing to try and understand some things in my life, but I ended up discovering this local writing organization called Lighthouse Writers Workshop. And I just started taking workshops with them, um, which is basically just you, you 
are in a class with a few other people, you share your writing, you give feedback on other people's writing, you discuss different readings and sort of break down how, <laughs> you know, what's working in these, these writers who are already masters of their craft. Um, and this kind of led me to their book project, which is a two-year program where they assign you a mentor and you're with a cohort of five other writers as you try to kind of work towards finishing a book-length project. Um, and I am working on a memoir, actually, <laughs> that is kind of about, and maybe we'll, we'll probably end up getting to this, but I, um, I skipped three grades when I was fairly young, um, which is why I went to college at 15. Um, I also grew up doing pageants and, you know, I've had this 10 year career in tech as a black woman. And, you know, I kind of, <laughs> I'm kind of writing about all those different things through a collection of essays. And I'm actually finishing my first draft in about a month um, and sending it to my cohort and my mentor, um, who's the amazing writer, Wahini Vara. Um, she actually wrote, she was a tech journalist for a long time, and she wrote this novel called The Immortal King Rao that was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize last year. Um, and I would definitely recommend it to readers because it is um, kind of about a world where technology plays a very, and AI play a very prominent role. It's kind of dystopian, but I think, um, you know, small aside, you should check it out. That's what I'm working on, and um, I'm excited to hopefully put it out in the world. And I guess the next couple of years, books are kind of a long, <laughs> long cycle length, so we'll see. Yeah, that that sounds amazing, and it definitely you know best wishes on on getting that edited and reviewed. And I'm I'm sure it's going to be a very exciting moment when it it goes out to the world. I want to transition our conversation to the next segment here, which is, uh, as you just alluded to, uh, your your kind of backstory. It is quite fascinating uh, hearing about you uh, talk about all your accomplishments. And let's kind of take it all the way back to uh, the very early days, right? So, um, you know, where did you grow up and, and what kinds of things were you into as a child? And, um, you know, what was that kind of environment like for you in your household to where you were able to skip three grades in school uh, and be so academically uh, talented? So I grew up in Colorado Springs, um, which is the second largest city in Colorado. It's, um, I don't know, I guess to paint a picture, it's at the foot of Pikes Peak. Um, so the mountains are super prominent. It's a beautiful town. It's kind of weirdly conservative. My parents aren't very conservative, but... Um, you know, that was definitely kind of like an influence growing up in that town or that city. Um, and as a kid, like I, I took dance for a really long time from age three to, you know, when I went off to school, I was, you know, in the studio, like, I don't know, at least four days a week. <laughs> um, so I really loved ballet. Um, let's see, I, you know, I was just kind of into school, like, I I ended up skipping three grades because my mom and dad just noticed that I was kind of a weird baby. I suddenly start started reading at age two and had like taught myself all these things. Of course, I don't really remember how that happened because I was so young. But, you know, my mom kind of worked very hard to figure out what school situation would be best for me. So I jumped around a lot. I didn't really have like a very traditional 
um, elementary school level education because I was sort of going all over the place. But then eventually my mom worked out something with our public school district to start in uh, the IB program at sixth grade. And, you know, once I entered sixth grade at the age of eight, I sort of continued from there. Um, and yeah, that's, <laughs> it was just three years ahead from, from that point on. Um, so I was very focused on school. I was an, an extra two years ahead in math. So I'd always been kind of mathematically inclined. Um, and yeah, I mean, outside of like dance and school, I, I was in choir. I did pageants, as I mentioned before. Um, I loved crafts. I loved to read. You know, that was that was what I was into as a kid, and to some extent, still am into. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And you mentioned about math, and so I'm guessing that was the kind of uh, driving factor for choosing to study computer science, right? Yeah, definitely. I was enrolled in both the engineering school and the College of Arts and Sciences when I started at Penn. And I wanted to double major in psychology. Um, I chose computer science just because I took a programming class and I was like, oh, this is kind of interesting. And I didn't really feel like doing more hard sciencey things like mechanical engineering or bioengineering. So I was like, I think I'm going to stick with CS. Um, but I ended up just getting a minor in psychology um, and uh, because I wanted to minor in classics too, which is also very random. Um, but yeah, that's, that's sort of how I ended up in CS is just like, I'm good at this. Um, or, you know, I, I'm decent at this enough to know that choosing a technical engineering field to major in will be good as a career option down the line. Makes sense. And since for pretty much your whole life, you've been younger than your classmates, how has that kind of shaped your view of, of the schooling system and, and maybe your friendships even um, as you went through high school and college? Yeah, I've definitely like always been, you know, friends with people who were older than me, you know, um, because they were my peer group for the longest amount of time, you know, again, starting in sixth grade. Um, I think when I was younger, I wasn't super social um, in that way. But as I kind of got into high school and college, you know, definitely was more friends with the people who were around me. And, you know, I think in terms of education, I think, like, I look back and I'm very grateful to my parents for fighting for like the right educational environment for me because I realize that's a challenge for most people like I don't have kids but again like I just read stories about how, you know how difficult it is to get accommodations for special education you know sort of the pitfalls of gifted education generally benefiting more affluent people who already have advantages and you know I sort of um I'm grateful that I went to a public school that was, that had this program, the IB program, but, you know, I recognize that there's just so many inequities in education and I, you know, even just within my own family and like extended family, I feel very grateful that I got the education that I did um, and hope other people can get the education they need and that we're a long way from that reality. Yeah, that is the sad truth, unfortunately. So after college, you 
worked, as we discussed earlier, as a software engineer and then an engineering manager. And you, I heard you mention earlier that you've been removed from that space for a few years now. So um, can you share a bit about, you know, why you chose to step away from that? Honestly, I was just very burnt out. <laughs> I had been working since I was 19, um, you know, full-time as an engineer. I, uh, you know, without really any time between jobs, you know, I became an engineering manager, like right before the pandemic started. <laughs> and so, and, and I was already remote by that point, And my, my whole team was based in Boston in person. And so, you know, in a weird way, the pandemic kind of made my job easier. But at the same time, just like, dealing with everything in the pandemic and everything at work, I was just very burnt out. And it just seemed like a good time to sort of reevaluate, like, what do I want for my life? What do I want from this career? Do I want to continue on this career path? Um, and so that's sort of how I came to, you know, kind of enrolling in the book project because I had been, you know, writing for like a year or two at that point and felt like this is something I wanted to do more of um, and wanted to kind of find support for that, um, which is how I got there. And then also how I enrolled in, OMSES because I didn't want to just walk away from, you know, all of this experience that I had as an engineer without, you know, knowing what I was going to turn that into next. And so going back to school seemed like a good way to kind of reflect and regroup. And so that's what I've been doing for the past um, two and a half years. Yeah, that's a perfect segue. So let's let's do that. Let's talk about OMSCS and your experience in the program. First off, why did you choose Georgia Tech and the OMSCS program? I think it may have to do something with uh, online education and flexibility, but um, you know, <laughs> maybe maybe that's not the case. I was familiar with it from my work at edX, um, and yeah, I mean, Georgia Tech isn't a very well-known prestigious technical engineering school and so and you know again it was affordable it was something that I you know felt like was you know something I could adapt to my life and I, I guess just wanting to be part of the project of like affordable high quality education <laughs> um you know as a student um and so that's that's why I chose it. I didn't I didn't even apply anywhere else because I was like, this is <laughs> this is what I want, you know. This is the, this sounds like the program for me, and I'm glad that I got in and, you know, have gotten to experience it. Yeah. What have been your favorite classes so far? Uh, I think definitely my favorite class uh, was really the first class I took, which was human computer interaction. Um, you know, I think again, for a lot of the reasons or the, you know, kind of pointing back to what I said early in the conversation around, you know, understanding kind of the context that you're building technology in. Um, I didn't really work on front end, uh, work, uh, as a software engineer as much, but I think it definitely was a great supplemental education because I worked with UX people and, um, you know, just kind of learning of how to, how to approach like 
building technology for people to do something useful um, and really thinking about all of those factors when it comes to building technology. Um, you know, again, I'm very much passionate about that. There's no, <laughs> like the technical details do not matter in a vacuum. They only matter in the context of like what it's actually doing out in the world. So I really love that class. I also just think Dr. Joyner's classes are so well designed, um, you know, which is why I'm happy to be a part of uh, KBAI. Although this, this semester, um, Ashok Gol is the lead instructor or uh, professor. So it, it switched up, but, you know, I think all of his classes have been really good um, that I've taken from Dr. Joyner. Um, I also liked cognitive science. Um, you know, again, sort of speaking to what is intelligence and how do we think about that in the context of humans or other beings and, you know, computers as well. Um, and how do you, how do we approach that, um, that question? <laughs> um, so those are some of my favorite classes. Awesome. And what do you hope to do with the master's degree once you're done? Do you want to go back into yeah. working as an engineer or, you know, what's, what's your vision with uh, this degree? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I think my first motivation for like why a master's would be useful to me was that I was interested in um, teaching. So I know with a master's, it's possible to teach computer science, at least at the university level or college level. Um, so I think my first priority will probably be looking at instructor positions, um, locally where I am in Colorado, um, because I guess I've always been passionate about education and, uh, you know, <laughs> I, you know, when I actually, when I graduated from college or when, when I was a senior, I was really interested in becoming a teacher, but it didn't pan out. And that's partially how I ended up into ad tech was just <laughs> trying to find any job, but, um, yeah, that's that's sort of the main thing that I want to focus on. I'm definitely open to going back to industry, but it isn't my first choice. Let's talk about the last segment of our conversation here. And what's um, more around your mindset and your outlook for what's to come ahead. So um, I was doing a bit of research uh, before we talked, and I found a quote that said that you taught yourself to read at the age of two, which is which is just incredible. And in this conversation, we've talked about how you've skipped so many grades in school and always been academically inclined. Um, so my question for you is, how do you learn a new topic? You know, what if, if it's for work or school or really anything in life, what's your approach to digesting something that you haven't seen before? I tend to just read about the topic um, or, you know, maybe if it's more of a hands-on skill, like um, watch YouTube videos. I mean, YouTube has so many resources. Um, like, I guess the latest thing that I did that's kind of random is I crocheted a scarf um, like a couple weeks ago and I just went on to YouTube and looked up how to crochet. Um, you know, so just finding the right resources to learn about that topic. I think if it's something that's more hands-on, especially like this crocheting example, um, or baking, which is also something that I've been doing for a long time and, you know, kind of love to do, just doing something hands-on, like 
actually doing the thing. <laughs> this definitely goes for coding, like learning a new language. If you just force yourself to do something and build something that's that that works or, you know, make something that is is the real thing, you will probably make mistakes along the way and that's fine, you know, but you will have learned a lot more than just reading all day. Um, you know, though that is important, I think doing is equally important. Um, and then I guess lastly, like this is maybe obvious, but maybe not talked about a lot, is just taking a class. Like that's why I'm in OMSES. And that's why I, you know, when I was interested in writing, I went to take writing classes and I've learned a lot from people who are really knowledgeable about whatever topic um, and kind of able to give you feedback about what you're what you're doing or what you're working on. I think, um, you know, don't underestimate taking a class uh, if you if you really want to learn, learn about something. Yeah, that's great advice. And one that I would add to that is uh, it's, it's actually one that I heard from a friend of mine who um, runs his own company is to read as many primary sources as possible. And I think that's that's often forgotten in our, uh, you know, attention driven world. Uh, even as we record this podcast, right, we have so much media nowadays, whether it's uh, newsletters or, or YouTube videos or podcasts, whatever it may be. Um, but sometimes I think it's 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 crucial to go back to the primary sources and really learn from the experts who have dedicated their life to a particular topic. And you know this this obviously applies more to things that are more um, you know technical or academic in nature, and maybe not so much for kind of like professional development or personal development type of topics where it's more, I guess, uh, okay to to learn by listening to other stories. Um, but if it is something that is more inherently technical in nature, then, um, you know, definitely trying to find as many primary sources as possible uh, to advance your knowledge is is what I would say. The last question that I have for you, Brittany, before we wrap up here is kind of an interesting one, um, if, if you'll bear with me. So uh, let's let's imagine that you had an extra hour in each day. Right. And um, you had the freedom to do what you wanted. What would you do with that extra hour? I feel like this is going to sound maybe boring, um, but I think one lesson I learned from uh, my career and kind of the leaving was just that productivity isn't everything. So honestly, if I had an extra hour, I would want to do something that I enjoy doing, um, whether that be just resting or just like, hanging out with my husband, like watching TV on the couch, spending time with friends, um, either, you know, catching up on Zoom if we're far apart or like meeting up for dinner if we're, you know, close by. I think that, you know, if I'm going to be looking back at the, <laughs> you know, even looking back just a week, you know, you don't have to look back that far to be like, oh, what was actually meaningful or like felt good for me to do? It's it's rarely like just grinding all the time. Not that it's not important to do that, but I just think that, you know, again, learning from like that experience of burnout, it's it's important to take care of yourself and, you know, spend time with people that you care about. So that's what I would do. One hundred percent. I love the <laughs> idea of balance and I'm glad I'm glad you said that. I think it's very important to just slow down sometimes and realize that 
what you're doing in your in your life is is just fine and you'll be okay and everything will be okay and it's it's uh you know not the end of the world if you can't get that one more task in so uh, i like your message there about balance awesome so so those are all the questions that i have for you Brittany. So where can people find you online? Do you have any social handles you'd like to share or any other, you know, I think you mentioned uh, previous talks you've given, you know, any any sort of um, links where people can check out some of your work if they want to? Oh, no, I'm terrible at social media. I do have an Instagram, which is Black Girl Baker. I, I, I kind of had like a brief little baking business going last year that like I couldn't keep up with because I got busy, but... Um, I do post things there sometimes. Um, so that would be um, at Black Girl Baker on Instagram. But otherwise, uh, yeah, I don't have like a main social handle for myself. <laughs> gotcha. Okay. Yeah, no worries. Awesome. Well, for those who tuned into this episode, thank you once again for tuning in. Um, I really appreciate your time uh, in in uh, checking out our episodes, and hopefully, you took away some awesome insights from this particular conversation with Brittany. If you're interested in checking out our other episodes, we have a website that you can find on the OMSCS uh, webpage. And we have our whole catalog of episodes there uh, with people as ranging from professors to current TAs to students um, and, and the whole spectrum there. So definitely check it out. And we've released episodes every two weeks. So definitely uh, you know, subscribe on your favorite listening platform. Uh, keep learning, keep growing, and uh, I'll catch you in the next one.